You are listening to the Regeneration Rising podcast, a podcast from the Kavira Coalition about the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of agrarians in the United States. Each episode will explore what it means to work in regenerative agriculture, how people came to choose this as their livelihood, and why it's important to them and the future. We hope to build a foundation for a strong community of future agrarians and land stewards with a regenerative approach to community, relationships, and the land. back to another episode of Regeneration Rising. I'm Taylor Mulia, and today my guest is Ryan White. He is the founder of Snaplands, a land management and natural resource restoration company that weaves hard data with producers' experiences to achieve the producers' goals for their land and business. Ryan is also a man of many trades, and we'll talk more about his fascinating background as a rancher, educator, and actually as an artist for the Smithsonian, which I think is pretty cool. So um, this is one of my favorite conversations I think I've had on the podcast. I think it's really relevant to a lot of our apprentices starting their seasons um, right here in, in March and April. And um, yeah, and also one thing I wanted to mention at the top here is Ryan is actually hiring. Snaplands has a couple positions open, um, one of them being the rangeland technician. And you can find more information about that at the bottom of this episode. Luca will do some job announcements. So stay tuned for that. And I hope you enjoy. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us on the Regeneration Rising podcast today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Taylor. So uh, let's start from the beginning. Where are you calling in from today? We are in Fort Collins, Colorado here, up in northern Colorado. And give us a background of yourself. Where are you from originally? And what were you interested in growing up? Well, I spent most of my youth in Maryland, in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., not too far from Rock Creek State Park. And I mentioned Rock Creek because that was kind of a saving grace for me personally. As a kid, I was really um, passionate about art. I loved drawing and I absolutely loved going for excursions outside. And our neighborhood, uh, we were on a tenth of an acre and that neighborhood was backed up against uh, some open space. And I would just go exploring around the woods and just absolutely Love pretending that I was the first explorer to ever visit a space. And um, yeah, I would just get lost a lot. And But that was just a very important, healthy part of my childhood. And um, yeah, other than that, other than exploring and artwork, uh, I love learning about Native Americans. And I love doing sports. I played soccer most of the time. And um Growing up, a lot of my friends, they kind of said I was born in the wrong century because as, as they were kind of doing a lot of the popular things that kids did in the suburbs, I was collecting bones and, and dreaming about what my nature center was going to look like one day. And it was, it was a little bit different upbringing than most people in, in the suburbs. And I was, I was very grateful for that. Were your parents interested in nature or art? Were you raised with any of that stuff or was it kind of out of the blue for that for your family? Well, yeah, it's a, that's really funny you mentioned that because they really weren't. They 
would really balk when I first started just kind of bringing home all sorts of what I called natural treasures. I didn't like going out on a walk without bringing home some sort of nature treasure that I could find. And uh, a lot of times that was a, a deer skull and something that really wasn't ready to be brought inside. Um, but they, they showed me how to, <laughs> they showed me how to clean it and prepare it. And um, eventually it qualified to come inside and, and, you know, I give them so much credit because I was different and uh, very different from them in some ways, but they kind of saw the curiosity. They saw the the passion and the heart that I think uh, it, it's that I just love things that they didn't, and they allowed me to pursue that. Um, and they would pay for nature camps and ways for me to kind of learn more and just get more engrossed in, in uh, artwork and um, yeah, exploring outside. And uh, they, Gosh, my mom, you know, as the kid, I have two brothers and we kind of made a mess of the house sometimes. And so eventually my mom would pay for a clean lady to come into the house uh, to help out at a certain stage growing up. It was probably <laughs> in our middle stage, school. Of teenage years. Desperation. <laughs> and, and that lady would not touch my room, Taylor. She would uh, she walk in there. She would see it surrounded by by bones and skulls and teeth and and artifacts from outdoors. And she she just wouldn't go in. There. It was against her. I think it was against her religion right, to, right. to touch that space of our house. <laughs> oh my She's like, I don't get paid enough for that. There's yeah, str- strong exactly. enough chemicals for that. <laughs> exactly. exactly. That's awesome. But no, I give my parents a, a huge amount of credit and I really appreciate appreciate them and all they've done to, to support me through the years. Yeah. So then walk us through college and being an artist. And and then we, we were talking before you said you got quote unquote prairie fever. So can you walk us through sort of your young adulthood? In middle school, you know, we all have these cornerstone moments in our life. And um, one that helped shape the path that I'm still on today is I've ha- I had some what I would call some some very um almost spiritual moments outdoors and uh, things that I can't really explain, but they, I just knew that there was a, there was a, um, a higher power and something that was very important to the, the life that I was being surrounded by when I was outdoors. And the first journal entry, I didn't know that creative writing or journal entry was a thing, but I was bored one day and didn't feel like drawing. And then my first journal entry was describing the feeling that I was on a highway and it was a highway that I didn't want to be on. And I was very desperately looking for an exit and, um, in, in searching for kind of a a path that I thought would be healthy and, um, just kind of true to, to that child that I was at that time, it was something that was going to be related to the outdoors. It's going to be something that was going to be related to life. It's going to be something that was going to be beautiful. And, um, that that allowed me to kind of get enough confidence when I was going through high school to, to basically start looking for people and organizations and groups that um, I could work for and I could add my skills and my passion to what they did. And uh, Bob Bateman was a wildlife artist that I discovered in early high school. And he was 
kind of a conservationist at the time, but very uh, smart in understanding the outdoors, a lot of global issues. And so since early high school, I knew that I was going to be a wildlife artist and I pursued that all throughout high school and college. That requires having a very good scientific backing of the landscape that you are wanting to depict. And so I double majored in ecology and studio art. And I studied in high school with some wildlife artists and, and, and as well as in college. And they, they were so generous in helping me with that path. And before graduating from college, I did some work that was very close to photorealism. And I thought that was the pinnacle of being a good wildlife artist was photorealism where we had been so respectful to what we could see that you couldn't even discern that it was a painting. And after I'd spent three weeks doing that, that's when I realized that I'm, I'm disrespecting not only my surroundings, but also myself because I have not put in something that's unique to that landscape. I'm simply copying what's there where that, that landscape and that environment has, uh, it, it needs our individual interpretation. It needs our story with it. And that's when I said, I'm, I want to do something different and serve the scientific community. And I did more illustration work for the Smithsonian Institute for a couple years and worked for <laughs> 11 hour days, getting on that Metro, getting out there early and getting home late. And I didn't tell anybody I'd do it for free. I was so grateful to have the opportunity to use my, my artwork to serve the scientific community. <laughs> and and um, luckily, they had um, put all that work in their government archives. And they, they totally boxed up all those hours of my life and all of that work. And um, as upset as that made me, that was a great hard knock in my life to be very careful about who you're working with, no matter what the pay is. Um, and to just be, to try to insulate yourself from those situations because they just happen in life. And so out in there, um, that prairie fever that you talk about Taylor was after, uh, I left the Smithsonian Institute to go get a job teaching environmental science, creating a school curriculum, and then um, the most natural thing to me was saying, hey, these are kids. They want to engage with and understand their outdoors. And so we started restoring the school grounds. And it was 50 acres. And we started making butterfly gardens, rain gardens. Uh, you know, they, they went from bare soil and, and basically parking lot material to having uh, over 50 different species of plants and monarch butterflies laying caterpillars right outside their window the next year. And that was uh, just to see the sparkle in their eyes. It was just the most natural thing to me. Um, and, and just thinking how to scale that is when I caught prairie fever. Yeah. And that was just engaging with um, the National Audubon Institute and them teaching me how to take those micro um, restoration projects and teach communities how to restore prairies at scale. And that's when I, there was kind of no turning back when we started adding, you know, that, that scale to all these ideas. 
yeah, what about Prairie caught you? Like what, what, were there any sort of other spiritual moments that you had or realizations or really changes in mindset that flipped? Cause there was for me and I'm just always interested now for other people what that looked like. So I was working for a group called Citizens for Conservation. Um, they were kind of partners with Audubon in restoring private and public lands around what we called the Chicago Wilderness Region, which was Wisconsin, Illinois, and Indiana. Uh, Stephen Packer and Tom Vanderpool allowed for me opportunities and, and sometimes no pay and then later with some pay to experience these landscapes. And we were out there collecting seeds um, in the fall to prepare for a seed sowing next spring. And I, I was just, I just kind of paused and I, I just had a, a moment out in that, that great big prairie. And um, it just hit me as the word just came to me, said, this is the most valuable thing in the world. And that was to me, obviously, but um, it was just again, a reminder of kind of what came about when I was a child that um, we can't put a dollar value on this. This is inherently a part of our nature. And um, I just, I knew that right then I was going to continue to find ways of serving landscapes and the people in those communities. And that, that was a point of distinction is later on in my life, I realized that the only way that we can be a part of these landscapes is if our communities are healthy, if our social relationships are healthy, because if that's not healthy first, all this other stuff that that is so inspiring to us, that usually gets second place. And so um, a very much integrated people as uh, a very com important component to these landscapes. And, and um, yeah, it was kind of that was kind of my moment, Taylor kind of moving on to the next chapter of your life. Um, 2017, you started Snaplands. Can you give us, we, we just got back from the Regenerate Conference, which I'm sure you've given uh, about 2000 spiels, but will you give us another one? What is Snaplands? Sure. Uh, so Snaplands is, is basically an outcome of the very blessed opportunities that I had where a kid coming from a 10th of an acre and outside of DC was wanting to learn about how to apply a profitable path towards and a proof of land restoration. And it is 100% a hundred percent a company where we are first working with ranchers, farmers, um, and brands that are connected to these networks uh, of farmers and, and land managers and, and listening to what their goals and objectives are. And once we have an understanding of that, then we can become a part of their team and helping them bring the right science and tools to have that land be a consulting mechanism to their operation. I don't think any sixth, fifth generation rancher should listen to me as to what is the best thing to do on their land. I simply find that Snaplands is a vehicle for that land to coach those people, families, and businesses to the outcomes that they want to get. And overall, what is the need that you are filling in the regenerative ag or even just in the general land stewardship community? Basically, we're bringing the, the latest and greatest technologies to that feedback mechanism. Um, I had the fortunate opportunity of my wife 
and Grasslands LLC, which is a company that I was working for. They're a ranch management company. Um, they work in the U- U.S. and internationally, and they gave me an understanding of the variety of different types of landscapes that we need to work with and the natural resources we need to work with. And working on scale is very important financially and socially to just the resilience of these businesses. And so we're bringing the remote sensing technology as well as the on the ground field technologies that are going to be um, the most helpful for this day and age. And so we've created our own land monitoring application, which can sync field data that's from the boots on the ground perspective of the environment and the managers on those properties and have that sync to um, scalable maps and very interpretable information that fits hand in glove with land planning and grazing plans. And and those land plans and those grazing plans are kind of the the backbone of the sustainable and regenerative movements. And so um, it's, it's all about keeping it applied. And so if you, you know, were to put it in a nutshell, it's that we are keeping information applied. And so that meets with that manager first because they're the experts on the ground and they are also going to be making decisions at the end of the day. And, and so that once we get that in first and we know that's going to be a part of their in, inherent life on that landscape and a part of that business making better decisions, then we can start moving to that second tier and saying, you have accuracies and uh, on the ground for your operation would it be value added to differentiate yourself in the marketplace to have better options for direct marketing? Would you like to take this information and apply for an EOV verification or an AGA verification or an EKG certification? Would that be beneficial to you? And so then now the manager has some more opportunities. The other value added that's that's huge recently is Colorado Cattlemen's Association has an MOU to take the some of the methodologies that we use in SNAPLANDS as science. And so there's enough quality control in there that the BLM and the Forest Service are using this management data. And they're um, able to, they, that's, this, that's the word, right? They're, they're actually allowed to, that's the problem. Uh, a lot of times these larger companies and the government is it's hard to uh, get into a gray zone and go outside of the bounds that they have to work within. And they're allowed to look at that and help differentiate our managers and say, you know what, we're telling everybody to stock, but given the information that you have on your permit, we're going to allow for you to increase your stocking rate. And so they're, they're doing that out of that rancher actually bringing ecosystem services to our public lands. And isn't that a great story to have where the rancher can receive an increase on their bottom line because of the stewardship they've been providing to their permits? You know, that increase in stocking rate is, is, a, great, is a great point that hits most of the bottom lines of our clients. And then we're able to look at take that information that maybe is not always management applied, but to help tell a story about 
how livestock, beef, and these managers are improving ecosystem services, which is exactly what our world needs right now. We got a, we got enough bad news going on. Um, so the, it's, it's, there's, you know, as one of our, my clients reminded me last month, he says, he said, we this is up in uh slide of Colorado. And he says, Ryan, you see, you see this, this is about 50% bare soil. So is that good or bad? And I said, well, it, it depends. He says, exactly. It depends. This is opportunity. And that's what we need today. That is what uh, Quivira and other organizations are doing a great job on, is they're saying there's so much opportunity to do good. We need to make the news today, and we need to go out and apply ourselves to these landscapes and make it better. So by us integrating with people like that, we're helping them get cross-cutting information so that they can be better managers and they can communicate to the corporations that need global impact statements, to the nonprofits that need uh, more examples of land stewardship and ecosystem services, to the other for-profit entities that are also trying to do similar things where we're trying to leave it better than we found it as well as to government agencies who are really bound by a lot of the, the limitations and rules they work within. And so by us speaking that same language, that allows for, for people to come together and to collaborate and, and make some better decisions. Tell us more about what kind of projects you work on. So you come to a rancher or a farmer, any land manager, and you're talking about applying technology to help them do what they're doing better and at least have some information about where we're going with this. And so do you help with the management aspect of that as well? And like actually on the ground, helping move cattle? Because, you know, Grasslands is a management company. They are actually running the show. Um, you guys come in and help folks do what they're already doing, right? Do you have anything to do with the cows, with fencing, moving, anything like that? No. So I would say most of our clients... We're giving them that land feedback loop, right? So here's how your land is trending towards away from your goals. You guys are the professionals out there on the ground. You are running the show. Um, you know what to do about that. There's a lot of people that are getting into this space and they say, okay, we're applying grazing plan or I'm, you know, I'm going to make the land better than I found it. And so they, they come in and they start realizing, the vast amount of complexities that ranchers and farmers have been dealing with for generations. And that learning curve is super steep. Um, so we're saying, okay, here's where the land is trending towards or away from your goals and objectives. We have staff on hand that can create grazing plans and land plans and kind of help them um, do the best in the movement today with land restoration at low risk because so Brandon Dalton, he is the guy that's leading up our special projects and he is probably one of the younger, more vetted in land planning and grazing planning in the U S and, and has worked on one of the largest stations on the South Island in New Zealand and with various different types of livestock. And so 
he is helping lead that kind of consulting arm of Snaplands, where we can we can help producers or companies expedite their their outcomes, if you will, or get to the results and the goals that they need at at, at a faster pace, or sometimes just come in and recorrect and help adapt and replan where they're at. And do you guys do financial data, financial help and consulting work as well? We outsource that mm-hmm. to another holistic manager who's has a lot more vetted experience in that. Yeah, that's that's a lot. But everybody is super experienced in kind of that holistic understanding of business and land regeneration. Um, so you know, there's no there's no point in time where we're working with anybody that really doesn't understand the boots on the ground needs mm-hmm. for the financial, the social or the ecological components. And I'm, I'm just kind of thinking about how this might play out with a producer. Is it sometimes really hard to talk to producers about data that's not looking very good or things that they're really going to need to make some massive changes? How, how does that conversation go? Yeah. Well, what, what really helps is we have some objective information at the table right? Mm -hmm. I mean, when we were living and working in Eastern Montana, it, it it was great. We would have a lot of conversations around the table uh, as to how things were going, what we thought needs were, what we thought priorities were. And it was, it was a super helpful to not only have a community that was educating us on what would be some ideas that we could use, but also to have some objective facts to say, you know, even though you thought this was a priority, this was a priority, here's some actual numbers to help back us up as to how much our bare soil has been trending in one area of the ranch relative to another, or how much available feed and um, what are stocking rates that we could put in one area of the ranch relative to another. And so when we have some information that's really not so inspiring, which, I mean, that was most of the country this past year, there was just a, a lot of drought that we were in, and um, that's going to continue. And, and, you know, every year in different parts of the country, we're able to look and say, here's the natural resources that you have available to you and the available feed. Here would be some break-even stocking rates that would do as best as you can for soil health at this time, as well as just making the bottom line pencil for this next year. And even, and so we can help kind of alleviate that, mm-hmm. you know, it's like the guy said, you know, this is opportunity. And so now we have um, an opportunity to say, this is probably what we can do with a livestock grazing enterprise. Um, but also be realistic a bit about saying, we're going to need to partner up and either find some more land or we're going to need to find some additional revenue and resources because available feed is just not there for you. And people can, that's a lot better than people just praying that's going to be there or hoping it's going to be there uh, when it's not. And it keeps, it keep, the point is to keep us in the driver's seat. We need to stay, we, we got to stay in the driver's seat. Um, and have the facts at the forefront so we can make the best next decision. Yeah, absolutely. And so your your background is 
we kind of skipped over your ranching background, but you have a pretty extensive ranching background as well. How does your experience in art and education and government and other agency work, how, how has that Im- impacted the way that you do your work? You know, initially, I, th- I really just kind of thought that um, the art was set aside. But in now looking back on it, I see that it's been super helpful to have had a, uh, an education that says, here is a blank canvas. Let's imagine what this can be and set that vision out in front of us and set some goals out in front of us and start working towards those goals. And, and that's exactly what I do when I have a, a canvas in front of me. And now that canvas is people's landscapes and it's their natural resources. And sometimes we're, we start off helping one another with kind of a coloring book. And, <laughs> and that is totally fine and okay, but that's where, where we're at sometimes. And, and then getting them to understand some of the principles of land restoration so that they can start to build confidence and creativity as to how they can become a more integral part in, in that story of that land. And that's, that's just the, the most cool thing. And, and that's where the art still comes into play now. You know, go, the government agencies are really good about kind of checking the boxes. And sometimes we need that for starting off. But um, I, I want to build people's confidence as soon as possible and say, take off the guardrails. Um, you guys, you, no, no kid is born today that doesn't want to leave the land better than they found it or improve upon what's there. And so we need to integrate their knowledge and expertise and skills in in our landscapes today, uh, desperately. And I can imagine your education background too, it just makes you a, a better communicator too. I think that these, these are kind of hard conversations too, that you're having. Like if you're talking about a family, that's, this is their livelihood. You're putting them in the driver's seat, but sometimes that, that road doesn't look great. And so, and sometimes it does, sometimes it has a lot of hope, but, um, and there can be different family members at play who have different ideas of how to solve these problems. And maybe even the fact that you're there, you know, so I feel like having, having an education background will help you like field and communicate those ideas a little easier. Oh, I'm, I got a lot to learn, Taylor. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we we're learning so much from the people that are out there on these lands and in these different environments from you know, Montana to Florida and sometimes in New Zealand. And so a lot of it is a social project that we're working on. You know, we can run all the numbers frontwards and backwards all day, but that doesn't mean people are going to uh, be able to respect that or be able to change. We get, we get stuck in this whole regenerative space and sustainability space and, and climate space. We get, you know, the, the numbers are very important to get better at, but at the end of the day, we need to have a resilient team that is that they're focused on goals. They're focused on a goal that's very important to the collective group. And uh, one of the things that came up with is that when goals align, knots unwind. And by having that goal in front of people, I think it empowers us to say, I know these are some hard knocks and some super hard decisions, but that right now today is my highest sense of right. And I can step forward doing that, even though I know it's a tough decision. And 
people really wrestle with this and I wrestle with this personally, but we need to step back and recognize that 70% of people were growing food back in the late 1800s. We now have less than one and a half percent and that's less than how many people identify themselves as Native Americans. We're a minority group here, and we are the backbone of society. By us claiming that we're going to grow food today and we're going to leave the land better than we found it, that puts us at such a small minority. And that also puts us in a leadership role for the next generation. And if we all we by us just claiming that, that's enough. That's enough. And so us struggling with that is, um, I just think it's a, it's an, such an amazing opportunity that I don't want people to ever lose sight of. We're going to struggle no matter what, no matter what we're going to struggle. But it's enough saying that I'm going to grow food and I'm going to leave it better than I found it. What are the greatest challenges for you in your work? We kind of talked about a couple of them. What I just said there, Taylor, is one of them, that we're enough. It is a, it's a, if you ask the statisticians, what's the chances that you're going to be alive or that you are alive today? And um, they're, you know, whatever calculations they run, <laughs> some of them don't get to the end of the equation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the, the statisticians, I've, I've read about this and they say it's a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. And I believe that. And so um, the inheritance that we were that we have being a part of these living systems is it's one, it's a miracle. Um, and two, we're the best catalyst for being here today. And um, by us claiming that we're growing food and we're going to leave it better than we found it is is uh, far more than most anybody can say today in this day and age. So one is trying to get that message across. The other is community and connection. This is a very lonely space. Too often that we find ourselves sometimes disconnected from one another and not able to have the conversation at the right time or support each other right when we need we need each other there. So that, that connection is really hard. And I mean a genuine connection, not, not some superficial text or screen time. And the only way that I think I have been able to survive that in the last 10 years of being in agriculture is having that childhood where I always felt connected to the, to the land and the outdoors. And I never really felt alone. And I feel more there. I feel more normal there sometimes than I do um, in any other place in the world. So um, also the, the financial aspect, you know, people are doing so many amazing things. Some of the, the best stewards that I can have ever run into in the environmental space, a conservation space, government space, they're out there growing food and stewarding some of the most epic, amazing landscapes. And they're financially struggling. My wife and I took a 75% pay cut after being teachers and we weren't making much as teachers. Um, and that's what, that's what we had to do to just to get into agriculture. But it was, it was the right, it was the, it brought us value beyond anything financial. Um, and don't, don't regret it a second, but 
I'm glad I was young because being ignorant and, and a little bit crazy and stubborn is, I think, what allowed us to, to find uh, some of the most inspiring people in, in uh, this, this regenerative space today. You know, I think there's a lot of young people listening to this podcast, and a lot of them are apprentices that have either are coming into our program or exiting our program. And this year, we had quite a bit, quite a few apprentices who, at the conference, were really frustrated. Were really frustrated with that pull of what you just said of like community finances, like the weight of that of stewarding land and being a really tiny, tiny majority of people. Um, the weight of it got really heavy this year. It felt like the, a lot of the apprentices are really struggling with that and asking questions of agriculture that I'm not quite sure agriculture can answer. Like, I just don't know if it's ever going to change. And I guess my question for you is, what advice do you have for young agrarians? Like, is there some value in mindset change in... What, what what can keep them going in this work? Because there are so many so many things that are stacked against them. Like what has kept you going? What can keep them going in a really real way? You know, like we all love this work, but it's it's like you seem to have a really positive mindset, and not a lot of us are equipped with that. <laughs> but have you had these conversations? And like how? What? Yeah. What what comes to mind? What keeps you going? Um, I don't have a yeah. It's a, such a Great question, Taylor. I wish I had more answers, but <laughs> I'm going to be work. I'm going to be working on this one. Okay. <laughs> um, I think. I think one is people have to be super resilient before even stepping into this space, unless they luck out mm -hmm. with finding an amazing operation or mentor. Mm -hmm. um, w the young generation has to be super brave and knowing themselves and what they need to function and to imagine that they had a life without friends, imagine they had a life without many connections and um, be ready for a very primitive learning curve when they get into some of these agricultural op operations. They need to be bullish. I, I just say that, that we need to be bullish with asking very thoughtfully asking for certain insulation around their experience on these landscapes but also knowing that they're stepping into what i would describe as just an entirely different culture and they don't expect that the amenities in which maybe they've experienced prior to this this work are going to be available to them for a very long time if they really want to be um, at the forefront of agriculture because these are um, that's financially it's especially socially um, on the ecological side it's it's almost unfounded opportunities that are that are so inspiring to any any child and kid in in the world right now is to be able to manage and help manage spaces that you know are are more epic and beautiful than some of our national parks. Don't worry about being judged. Bob Bateman, when I talked to him, he's that wildlife artist I mentioned earlier out of Canada. He said, "Earn your meal ticket. Earn your meal ticket first. Don't go be a starving artist. 
And I would say, don't go be a starving rancher. Don't be a starving farmer. If you're worried about where your paycheck is coming from or where your food is going to come from, you will not be creative and you will not be an asset to the land, nor your friends or your family. Earn your meal ticket. And so that's what I, that's a perfect example of what I mean by insulating yourself as you get into this space. You know, I'm, I'm happy to talk with anyone on an individual basis about this. Um, because sometimes we don't know the questions to ask before we, we go move out into, you know, the 50,000 acre ranch and be like, wow, this is going to be awesome. And (laughs) I I think it's so true. It's so true. It's like, even if you're not moving to the 50,000 acre, even if you're just moving to a farm that's on the edge of town, like there is such a cultural difference. I don't think we talk about enough. And also getting into agriculture, having no family support, having, you know, even, you know, first generation farmers going into this without someone to care for their land while they go, if they want to go visit family, like, you know, there's so many different supports that aren't there that can't be discounted. Yeah, a hundred percent. And so I think if I were, um, so I got offered what was, what Quivira said that was a Carly apprenticeship back when the apprenticeship program was first started. And George and Julie in San Luis Valley, they were, uh, they kind of were saying, yeah, you know, you're going to have a kid and you and your wife might want to think about some of these other opportunities on the table. And whereas I thought I would probably have learned a lot more with them, uh, I took it to heart and said, yeah, I'm going to go get a job that's paying. And, um, I'm going to ease my way into this a little bit more. And so I took a, 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 a better paying job near some family. And I think that was the right move to make. If I were to be applying for any sort of ag jobs today, uh, I'd want to be interviewing the, the property and the people more than uh, they're interviewing me. You know, the, the how often am I going to, be able to make a call to someone that I know. How often am I going to be able to see somebody going to town? Can I take Saturday off? Can I take Sunday off? And, um, you know, what is the, what's the week to week culture of this place? How do you make decisions? Do I meet with you once a week or, you know, do you expect me to come in knowing how to drive the truck, the ATV, the stick shift, uh, and, and just be as, as honest and frank as possible. People really will respect you for being a self-advocate. On the flip side of that, you are entering a different culture. These are people that are probably the last remaining experts on land management because their life depends upon it. So you go in with a very humble heart and a lot of grace to realize that people don't know how to talk. They've been working a landscape for their whole life and maybe fifth generations and nobody talked to them about how to talk about it. And so we got to help them sometimes learn to communicate and have as much grace and humility as possible. But the life lessons you're going to learn are going to be, are, are absolutely priceless. That's a great way to put that because I feel like a lot of young people well, I think first of all, there's this notion that you jump into it and if you quit for it at any point, you're quitting. 
in others like this aspect of like, you're, you can't handle this. You aren't cut out for this work, you know? And, um, I, I like what you said about easing into it. Cause I kind of feel like that might be the right, that might have to be the right option for a lot of people, especially financially. If you're not coming at this in a good financial position, like you got to do what you got to do. There's no shame in taking a step back, working for a little bit, finding your place. Um, because there's a lot of ways to be involved in agriculture at any given point. A hundred percent. And there's more, um, another point to make is there is a lot of diversity in agriculture. And so, um, if you're turned off by one operation or one person, there's someone that's a a hundred percent different on the other side of the fence sometimes. And so don't ever be turned off by that and, and realize that if this is, if this is in your heart, and you're passionate about it and you're fired up about this, it's going to be on your radar. And there are going to be opportunities that will come to you. What you put out will come to you. And um, I asked Dave Pratt, (laughs) I said, Dave, can I come to your class if I don't have a ranch or any land yet? And he said, well, I don't know, you might want to, you might want to like work on that relationship first so you can get it applied. And, And it was right. But I kept learning about it, even if I didn't have a ranch and so when I hit the ground running, I had a little bit more, uh, you know, a little less learning curve um, than maybe the other, you know, 30-year-old ranch hand that, that was out there. But uh, it's never too late. And, um, you know, we need different people in this space. And there's already a lot of diversity in this space. So if you have it in your heart and on your radar, um, those opportunities will come. And just find the right relationships to have. Don't worry about the money initially get, you know, earn your meal ticket, but then just work on the right relationships that are really doing this with integrity. And they have a record of integrity in this space. And, um, I think you, you know, the, the doors that open up, people will be extremely grateful as, as I have been. One kind of realization that I've had lately is that you know, when you're learning agriculture, you're also learning how to be, we're constantly learning how to be humans, like at the same time. And I think we forget that a lot. <laughs> it's like, especially when you're, uh, a lot of our apprentices are going through their twenties, which is a really rough, it's a rough go. You're faced with a lot. You got a lot of heavy things globally happening, but then also you're trying to understand who you are and what your values are. Like you said, like that integrity and the humility that come along when you're developing as a human that's also happening as you're learning about what you're going to do in your career so that can't be discounted like these apprenticeships help you become a better human and understand that humility almost as much or more so than what you're learning in agriculture yep and if you if people are allowed the grace and the time to get to know uh folks out there doing this real work um the opportunities will continue to come it's been a it's very much a word of mouth community. And if it's only marketing, a lot of times we find that that's a, that's kind of a gray area and you're really not sure if that relationship is going to be what you want or because everybody says they're sustainable. Everybody says they're making the world a better place. And that's exactly why Snaplands was formed is to say, we're going to cut through all the crud and we're going to get down to the ground where the shift is actually happening. We're, we're first going to set out some goals and we're going to sit down and learn. And we're, then we're going to make the best next decision and we're going to keep doing that. And so it doesn't matter, you know, if, if you were in the, in this or that bandwagon, you have your land 
and you know exactly the impacts that you're making as a person. And it's one of the most gratifying things that I, I've, I know how to do and, and how to offer others is because it's, it's direct feedback, right? It's like we're humans, we're part of a living system and we're a catalyst for good and we're a catalyst for creating more life. And that's enough. And that's enough. Thank you so much, Ryan, for all your time today. It was wonderful to talk to you. So thank you for joining us. Thank you, Taylor. And I think these podcasts and this sharing of information and stories are just so critical to our space. And I think what you're doing is is just super powerful. I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity. So thank you. Thanks again, Ryan, so much for joining us on the podcast today. If you would like to learn more about Snaplands, you can just go to snaplands.com. If you're looking for a way to get involved in regenerative agriculture, whether that's through a job, internship, educational event, or conference, you've come to the right place. Kivira Coalition has spent decades building a network within the regenerative agriculture community, and we love to share job, internship, and apprenticeship opportunities with our community through this podcast and our monthly newsletter. You can sign up for that newsletter at kiviracoalition.org slash getenews. Snaplands is hiring a rangeland field technician. This is a seasonal position from May through October. The position consists of conducting rangeland monitoring and data entry for managers seeking to sustain, restore, or gain regenerative status on agricultural lands. Spring training will take place in Fort Collins, Colorado, followed by extensive travel within the Great Plains and Rocky Mountain region throughout the duration of this position. To find out more, visit conservationjobboards.com. Western States Ranches in Colorado is hiring a ranch hand. They offer housing and other benefits, including health insurance and paid vacation. The right candidate will have two years of livestock handling experience and an understanding of holistic management principles. This position will involve grazing and forage management, irrigation, and livestock management. For more information, email bdalton at grasslands-llc.com. Thank you for listening to Regeneration Rising, podcast production of the Kavira Coalition. We'd like to thank our guests for taking the time to talk with us about their experiences. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and other popular podcast platforms. Become a Patreon supporter by visiting kaviracoalition.org slash podcasts. We'd also like to thank Kavira staff members, Leah Ritchie, Taryn Dixon, Taylor Mulia, Lynn Whitbeck, and Caroline Caldwell for their contributions to producing this podcast. This episode was edited and engineered by Caleb Wenzel-Fisher. Wanderlust, our theme music, was made by Scott Buckley. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the land.